This is the podcast version of the YouTube series, From Here to the Stars, which is created by the Interstellar Research Group. I am your host, Stephen Ewan Cobb. Our guest today is Laura Montgomery, a space lawyer. After more than two decades working on the space side of the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, she is now in private practice, where she counsels clients about space transportation licensing issues and teaches space law at Catholic University's Law School in Washington, D.C. Uh, I'm interviewing Laura Montgomery, space lawyer. Uh, thank you for joining me. How are you doing today? Good, good. It's a pleasure to be here, Steve. Thanks for inviting me. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, you are the proprietor of Ground-Based Space Matters. If you would, describe this firm and, and what it does. Well, it's a sole proprietorship. I am the sole proprietor, and it's a law firm. I provide legal advice mostly regarding FAA licensing issues to launch operators or sometimes subcontractors in spaceports. Mm -hmm. And that all revolves around how to get an FAA license, um, what to do when you have one to stay in compliance. I, probably the bread and butter of my practice is the uh, financial responsibility requirements of the Commercial Space Launch Act, where the um, the, the law requires launch operators to enter into agreements with each other to waive claims. In other words, not to sue each other. And that extends to their contractors and subcontractors. And so there's that. There's also the purchase of mandatory statutorily required insurance. And then the possibility of indemnification if your rocket has a really bad day. Mm -hmm. So um, it's only a possibility of indemnification. Congress would have to appropriate funds to cover losses in excess of insurance. Mm -hmm. So that's my um, that's my the heart of my practice. I also write a blog, which in goes over mostly FAA things, but also the outer space treaties, which I've become very involved with uh, on a policy and academic level in recent years since I left the FAA. Okay. Um, you are an adjunct professor of space law at Catholic University's Columbus School of Law, which suggests not only that the school has a class in space law, but that students are signing up to study it. Are these students looking to make a career specializing in space law? Well, you are correct in your surmise that there is a class. Catholic has been offering a class in space law for a number of years, there was a hiatus um, when the previous fellow, Bill Carroll, retired. Uh, but then they brought me on and I teach every other spring semester. It's a small school, so the classes so far been around a dozen kids, a uh, dozen students, excuse me. Um, and uh, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a fun class. I don't think that all of them are interested in making a career of space law, but there's usually one or two in there who are pretty keen on it. And some of them participate in a space law moot court and that's held nationally and then internationally. And um, so, so it's, a, it's a, a strong field of interest I, I have found. Okay, okay. Uh, you spent over two decades with the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration. During your time there, you represented the FAA at the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. Describe that event, if, uh, if you would. Well, the, um, 
the UN has a whole bunch of committees, one of which is on the peaceful uses of outer space. And that has two subcommittees, one on, for science and one for law. And um, every year there is a meeting in Vienna where the various governments of, of the signatory nations send um, legal representatives and others show up as well um, from the private sector and academia. And um, I went twice. Once I addressed how the FAA doesn't need to define where outer space begins because one of the continuing agenda items for the legal subcommittee is where does outer space begin? Mm -hmm. And we're like, well, we're able to license rockets um, and re-entry vehicles and nothing on orbit because no jurisdiction there uh, without figuring out where outer space begins. We, we figure out if you are a launch vehicle or a re-entry vehicle, then we know you need a license and it doesn't matter how high you go, but whether you have a rocket or not. And, um, and we also know that once you're in orbit, you're in outer space. So it's, it's that gray area below orbit that people wonder about. But you know, even if there's a lot of intellectual curiosity out there, until we need to define it, uh, the U.S. isn't going to define it because it's kind of nice to say this is my sovereign territory going up into the national airspace system as high as possible for some circumstances, but in other circumstances you might want to say, hmm, well we're over that country so we're, we're not in their airspace, we're in outer space. Mm -hmm. So until we have to figure it out, uh, the U.S. government, as, as of the time I left the FAA, uh, doesn't want to say. And mm -hmm. a lot of others don't either. So the, the interest remains academic. Hmm. Okay, okay. Um, you chaired an interagency working group on space property rights at the request of the Office of Science and Technology Policy in the White House. Space property rights um, sounds like ownership, like owning a piece of land on the moon or Mars. How did that develop and what decisions came out of it? Well, it... Um, this was before the 2015 amendments to the, um, to the law where Congress recognized that anyone who mines or extracts resources from outer space, including celestial bodies like the moon or Mars, um, it, where Congress recognized ownership rights in, in those extracted resources. So um, there was a lot of uncertainty about that that led to the creation of um, this sort of little, little group where we were trying to figure out uh, whether, whether those rights could be recognized. Now, um, when you're talking about space property rights, yes, you're correct, you're talking about ownership. And um, it sort of falls into two categories, however. There's the extracted resources, what we might call mining here on earth. And, um, and then there's also, land, interests in land. And um, the group got together and we wound up um, agreeing to disagree <laughs> at the end of the exercise because there was a whole lot of controversy about how to interpret the treaties. And um, personally, I'm in favor of recognizing property rights, both in extracted resources and in land uh, for the private sector. I think that is allowed under the outer space treaties and certainly under you know, American law, it is a, a doable thing. You know, we, we all, lots of us have, have homes on land and we own them. And it's, I think, a good, a good um, policy to pursue, 
when people can own land that incentivizes them to be productive with it and they have certainty about its value and what they can do down the road. So um, you can also leverage it, you know, you can put it up as collateral and use it to be even more productive by getting a loan from a bank. So having, having um, recognizing uh, that private, the private sector can have interests in land is probably a very good incentive for further development and exploration and movement out into space. I'm a space settlement um, proponent. So I think this is one of the very necessary legs in the stool to get there so mm -hmm. that we can, um, we can eventually have a spacefaring civilization. Okay, okay, <clears throat> excuse me, um, let's see. Uh, you testified recently before Congress. Um, um, if you would tell me a little bit about the, how that went and, and what came of it. Well, that was very interesting. Um, there was around the 50th anniversary of the Outer Space Treaty, there was a move to look at whether we needed to revisit it. Um, also in about 2015, 2016, there were attempts made to uh, pass a law saying that everything that any US citizen did in outer space would be regulated and that was required by the Outer Space Treaty. Mm -hmm. And um, when I left the FAA, I got invited to testify to the space subcommittees of both the House and Senate on this latter question. And I said, no, you do not need to regulate everything in space. Um, Article six of the Outer Space Treaty requires the um, nationals, pri private entities, um, non-governmental entities in outer space shall require the um, authorization and continuing supervision of their activities. And that's all very well and good, but it doesn't say which activities or all activities. I mean, God forbid we need a license to brush our teeth in outer space. <laughs> and, um, you know, those of us who are parents know that soccer is an activity and playing the piano is an activity and all, all there's so many human activities that um, we, we do not need to, to jump into a law that says regulate all of them. I mean, if we were gonna do that, I think we should first you know, federalize Connecticut. It's a small state. And if we were going to practice regulating everything a human does, we should start with a small state, not outer space. So um, I, I, I spoke against that. And then the other half of it is, is that under American law, even if you have a fully ratified treaty, which the outer space treaty is, it, is, it meets every test for being a real treaty, um, it does not have an effect on the private sector until Congress passes implementing legislation. So for launch and reentry, the Congress said, FAA, you've got that. Make, the, make anyone conducting a launch or reentry get a license from you. And it says satellite operators, you need a license from the Federal Communications Commission. Uh, if you are taking pictures of your home planet and you're an American, you need a license from the Department of Commerce to do so. So, um, but it has not said that if you are brushing your teeth on the space station or that if you are playing the harp on the moon, you need a, a, harp, a space harp playing license. So the, the private sector is free to go and the lunar harpist can strum away without a license. So 
Um, Congress needs to act before, before that happens. And part of the reason I was talking about this was because there was a lot of um, gnashing of teeth. Oh, we have this outer space treaty and no one can go to space until Congress passes a law. It's like, well, no. <laughs> People can go to space and, and they don't have to worry about a license until Congress passes a law. And that's the case under US law. So mm -hmm. um, that was what I talked about at these um, hearings. And okay. since then, there've been, there's been a more recent hearing where indeed there's been strong interest in how property rights would work in outer space. Do you have an idea for a podcast or a video series, but don't have the means to produce and edit it? Or are you simply looking for someone to produce and master your podcast or video series? Well, look no further. The team at Videos, Vocals, and Adventures can help fulfill all your needs for your video and podcast series. Visit videosvocalsandadventures.com today and find their contact information page for affordable pricing offers to get your next project started. You can also find previous series they have sponsored to get a better idea of what they do and how they can help. Video Vocals and Adventures produces this podcast and video series, From Here to the Stars. VideosVocalsAndAdventures.com That's VideosVocalsAndAdventures.com Visit them today! Okay. Um, <clears throat> you've been in uh, concerned with space law for some time, a number of decades. How has it changed since you first got into it? Well, I... Um... I have a bit of an FAA-centric viewpoint because I did spend 22 years at the FAA, so I can I can speak to that. And uh, the, the treaties haven't changed, but domestically on the US side, I think there, we've seen a lot more clarity in the regulations. When I started at the FAA in the uh, mid-90s, mid we didn't have a lot of our regulations in the Code of Federal Regulations. So sort of unclear what they were. And um, so we went and, you know, borrowed a lot of safety requirements from the US Air Force. We implemented requirements addressing orbital debris. We were very proud. We were the first regulatory agency to do so. And, but the FCC and NOAA also followed suit. And so there's, Debris is one of the places where we've seen a real sea change because there weren't any regulations and now there are. So they're all addressed to mitigation rather than remediation, but they're, but they're on the books now. And I know the uh, FAA is, is planning something that may be coming out this year for, for further requirements for debris mitigation. Okay, okay. Um, <clears throat> I'm well-versed in space but I am not well-versed in law. <laughs> and so this is a, <clears throat> a very amateur question, but what is the, what's the difference between a law and a, uh, and a regulation? Well, that is a very clever question, Steve. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I feel kind of dumb asking it. Well, okay, so um, it's hard <clears throat> to tell the difference. They're both mandatory. They're both enforceable by um, fines or, or prison in some cases, not the FAAs, they're, they're civil, they're not criminal, um, criminal laws. But um, as, a, as a technical legal matter, Congress passes laws. The constitution gave Congress the power to enact legislation. The executive branch is supposed to carry those laws out. 
However, over the course of the history of the United States, Congress has delegated much of its legislative authority to the executive branch. And um, Congress has delegated much of its authority to its legislative authority to the executive branch. And the executive branch turns around and writes more detailed requirements. So Congress says, FAA, go issue launch licenses consistent with public health and safety, safety of property and other things. And the FAA says, okay, um, you could achieve safety in a lot of different ways. Uh, the, the aviation side of the FAA issues regulations addressing aviation safety by requiring high degrees of reliability. Expendable launch vehicles, the pointy end up rocket that takes a satellite to space does not have the same level of reliability that you and I expect when we get on an airplane. It's just not there. It's not terrible, but it's, you know, it's in the high 90 percentile, but, but we don't want, we want better than that for, for air travel. Especially so, if you fly a lot. <laughs> yes, especially if you fly a lot. So mm -hmm. the, um, the FAA's approach to safety for expendable launch vehicles is um, what the Air Force has been employing for, for decades, which is that we blow them up if they go off course. Mm. Yes, indeed we do. And um, these are, these are you know, heavily fueled vehicles with high effective casualty areas, which if they landed on land without being first destroyed, um, could kill a lot of people. So that would be very bad and we're against it. So um, the regulations that the FAA has and that I worked on extensively in my early, the early part of my career are all about how making sure that the destruct system works that's the part of the rocket that does have several nines to the right of the decimal point of reliability. And so um, those, those regulations are enforceable. You can get your license suspended, you can be fined. Um, and so boy, they look a lot like laws, don't they? But mm. they are called regulations. Okay, okay. Because they're um, issued by the executive branch. Okay. So, uh, it makes perfect sense to me that the FAA would be involved or the, the primary <clears throat> uh, regulator for uh, space because all flights originate currently from the earth and they all, if they return, they're going to return to the earth. And there's a lot of people living on earth that need protection. <laughs> indeed, indeed. The oceans notwithstanding, <laughs> there's, yeah. there's still a bunch of people and some of them in very densely populated areas. So your collective risk could be really high there. <laughs> yes, yes. And it, which actually flies in the face of what I first thought when I was first preparing questions for this interview. I thought, what's the FAA got to do with space? They deal with air. <laughs> <laughs> Someone um, said synergies and moved uh, the space office out of the Department of Transportation and into the FAA in the late 90s. Uh, because you do have to go through the air to get to space. So, um, yeah. but it yeah. isn't, they're, they're different parts of the FAA and they are, um, implementing different laws. There's the Federal Aviation Act and there's the Commercial Space Launch Act. So um, depending on whether you're an aircraft or a launch vehicle, you'll come under different parts. Different, different I think we've been hearing a lot about uh, Elon Musk and uh, SpaceX and these different organizations. And, and so they're becoming more aware of the commercial side of uh, space exploration or, or uh, building out infrastructure in space. And so, um, there was a time, <clears throat> I'm sure it might not have been that long ago, when 
other lawyers would look at your title as a space lawyer as something frivolous <laughs> or maybe clickbaity so that, you know, a, a, a grab for TV and airtime or radio time. Um, have you had any pushback in that in that regard? Well, I wouldn't say it's my title. I'm just, it's what I do. There's, there's criminal lawyers, there's um, litigators, there's all sorts of different types of law. And, um, you know, you wouldn't want me writing your will. But, um, you know, if you, if you want to launch a rocket, I'm your gal. So, oh, okay. Um, okay. And, and, you know, this is something I've been doing for decades. Before I went to the FAA, I did satellite work. So mm. there's, there's different, there's even different subspecialties of space law. And the satellite lawyers know different things than I do. And um, it's, it's a real thing. And, and people, people know about it. It's, more and more, especially as private space activity becomes more uh, both prevalent and prominent and, and known about in the news. So people know that there is private space activity and, and you know, with this private space, private activity, there's going to be lawyers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Some people think of laws mostly, or lawyers and, and, uh, and the laws that they deal with as a uh, onerous burden. Um, and they seem to forget that they're there to prevent chaos. There was a time when there were no traffic lights at intersections and cars had to basically decide who's going to go next <laughs> <laughs> at random. And those that were more aggressive, well, they were more likely to go. And those that were more sheepish were they were less likely to go. Um, and by putting up traffic lights, a, a simple regulation like that, um, it, it alleviated the chaos and allowed a smoother flow of traffic. Um, and so I think that's how um, all laws kind of work. They regulate things so that there can be less chaos and less confusion and less danger from that chaos. Well, I would say that's what lo laws are designed for. I don't know that they all work that way. Sometimes they're very confusing, very poorly written, um, and, they, and they are written by people who don't always envision the effects and consequences of the words they use. Um, so so there's, a, there's a real continuum as to whether there's good laws, bad laws, um, effective laws, laws that are well thought out. I, I do understand that people don't like all the laws. I, there's a number I'm not fond of, but um, you, they are meant well which is not necessarily always a saving grace. <laughs> so it's, it's not, I think it's useful to have lawyers involved in writing them because we are trained to think of worst case failures in a way that sometimes people who have more disdain for the language don't worry about, so. Okay, uh, let's see. <clears throat> when a client comes to you, what are they typically looking for you to do for them? Um, well, if, you if, if the regulations are well-written, and some of them are, I, I hope that the ones I worked on are, uh, they're, they're clear enough that you don't need to have a law degree to understand them. So a lot of launch operators are perfectly able to figure out um, what, the, what the regulations require and fill out an application and submit it and get a license without talking to a lawyer. However, sometimes clients are odd in that they are doing something slightly different technologically. 
They might be launching from an aircraft or they might be doing other things that I'm not going to get into because they're my clients. <laughs> but um, so then legal questions as, arise. Well, if it's launching from an aircraft, and this is an old settled public question that I'm not giving any secrets away on. Um, if my rocket's launching from an aircraft, do I need a launch license or do I need aircraft certification for, the, for that launch? So that's a legal question that someone has to figure out. And the answer is that aircraft is the first stage of that launch. So it comes under the launch license. But um, so when you're doing something new and different, something novel, then you might need a lawyer to help you navigate the FAA's regulations. And you might have a preference. You might prefer to be under the aircraft regulations. You might prefer the space regulations. And so your lawyer can help you get what you want because you know we know where to look for things. We know the past history of what the FAA has done. We know if there's precedent that, that you can rely on that will help you get what you want. Um, also, they come to me for these cross waivers of liability. Like if you have space, if you have, um, if you're going to be taking up space tourists, then you want that space tourist to sign the cross waiver with you where they agree not to sue you and their state agrees not to sue you. And those have to be written rather carefully because the FAA hasn't yet written regulations um, on that specific scenario, even though Congress has passed a law. Hmm. So, um, I help people write those. And, you know, so weird questions and, and um, cross waivers, like I said, they're my bread and butter. I suppose the weirder it is, the more they need you. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yes. And I have one client who's legally fascinating and makes all of us just tear our hair out in terms of <laughs> What are they? I would never have imagined they would be so interesting and. Are you a fan of space and traveling from planet to planet? Great. If you would like to get your company advertised on our podcast and video series, you can reach out to us by emailing us media at irg.space. The Interstellar Research Group has many sponsor benefits ranging from lunar to intergalactic. Be sure to mention that you would like to get your company promoted in the From Here to the Stars podcast and video series. That email address is media at irg.space. Media at irg.space. And be sure to check out our website, irg.space, for more information. Thank you and have a stellar day. and complex. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, let's see. Um, how did you first decide you wanted to pursue, uh, pursue a career in space law? Well, that was probably college. I began reading science fiction at the age of 13. You know, Robert Heinlein's The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, great book. And, um, and that's when I switched from, you know, being passionate about horses to being passionate about space. And I thought I wanted to be a science fiction writer for a long time. But then, you know, when I was in college and, and it looked like I would need to, you know, make a living, I started thinking, well, I would, I think law school would be good for me. I'm kind of an argumentative person who gets hyper, hyper rigid about, about rules and requirements and things. So, so um, maybe I should go to law school and I can work for NASA. 
Did you anticipate the rise of, uh, of more and more space, especially commercial space things? Well, I was hopeful, you know, I'm just a science fiction reader. So it seemed to me like there, there could be a lot of space law and there was indeed um, things happening back when I was in law school that made me think that maybe I could, you know, work for doing satellite work too. And in fact, I went to a firm that had satellite work. By the time I got there, the guy had left uh, with the satellite work. So I did a lot of telecom and black lung. And to be perfectly honest, the black lung legal work was just as useful to me when I got to the FAA as the telecom and eventual satellite work that I got was because there's something called administrative law and that is the law of agency regulation. And black lung is regulated by the Department of Labor. Benefits are paid to coal miners who've developed coal workers' pneumoconiosis. And so I wrote a lot of briefs about that on behalf of insurance companies. And I learned a lot of administrative law, which doesn't matter whether you're talking about um, wetlands or satellites or rockets, administrative law applies uh, to all of these different agencies. So that was, that was um, extremely useful training and probably part of why I got hired was hmm. I had worked in this insurance, a, a, a federal insurance environment before, before I came to, came to the FAA. Okay, okay. Um, let's see. Uh, to most people, the need for space lawyers is of course obvious. Once we are in space, living there, working there, most people might think you've jumped the gun maybe by a few decades. How is it you saw that the need uh, that need already existed? Well, you know, I wanted to be a lawyer and I wanted to do space stuff. And so, um, you know, I did know that that there was commercial activity in the form of satellite mm -hmm. activity. And then after the Challenger accident, of course, the uh, the private sector became more important for um, for getting to space for transport. And then um, I didn't get a job with NASA right out of law school. I went to a law firm. So, um, but I kept tabs on, I subscribed to Space News and I kept tabs on what was going on. And um, so I also kept tabs on what jobs were available. And when the Department of Transportation advertised a, a job for a space lawyer, I'm like, I could do that. And I firmly believe, just so you know, that I got the job because not only was I, you know, someone who understood administrative law and had a strong interest in space, but after my first interview, I went from the Department of Transportation over to the uh, National Air and Space Museum where I touched the moon rock for good luck. And oh, I got the job. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, but you know, I think reading science fiction helps you see the see the future. You read all sorts of weird stuff when you read science fiction, and and there have to be people providing all these different services. Mm -hmm. So, sure, you you will okay. need lawyers too. Uh, this is not one of the questions I've written down, but it's one I've asked before of other people, uh, and you kind of touched on it a bit. Um, and the question is, what part do you believe that um, inspiration plays in innovation, not just with space, but other things as well? You mentioned it as, uh, as um, sort of a, uh, uh, not a guiding stone, but something that inspired you to get into, uh, into space law. Um, and so basically, you know, what, what 
part do you believe that inspiration plays in building the future, people becoming, going in, choosing careers and, and following their, their passion? I, I think it plays a huge part. Um, I, I know that the source of my inspiration was reading, you know, Robert Heinlein's books that were so many of them set in space and, you know, on the moon, other planets. Um, I, I'm always intrigued by the people who are really keen on space without having read science fiction <laughs> or, or, or watched a lot of science fiction, but they just, they just love space for its own sake. Mm -hmm. And I, I think they, are, they have the true explorer's heart um, because they, it's like, well, we've, we've got this planet under our belts, let's go find another one. And I think that's, that's pretty cool. And they wanna go over the next hill. I'm, I'm a little, especially at my age, I'm a little more, you know, stay at home type of person, but I would like to go to the moon, <laughs> you know, for, for a tourist visit. So, but I don't want to like be the first settler myself personally, but I do want other people to get to be. I think it would be really cool if we became a spacefaring civilization. And I think that given how, you know, space is perpetually an industry at the crossroads, we need to keep pushing and we need to keep being inspired. One of the things I worry about that I think is a drawback of science fiction is that when you watch the movies and, and television shows, they make it all look so easy. Yes, we're just going to be you know, in one solar system one day and then the other one the next, maybe in hours. It's so much harder than that. And, um, and then when you start working in that sector, you realize how very much harder it is and how, how far we have to go. So I would say, you know, science fiction can inspire, but it can also make you complacent when, mm. when really there's a lot of work to be done. Okay, okay. Uh, let's see. Oh, uh, I understand you also write science fiction. Uh, which of your novels sells the best and which one are you most proud of and why are you proud of? that particular novel? Hmm. Well, um, the, my best-selling novel is called Sleeping Duty, and it is the first book in my Waking Late trilogy. It's a, uh, a spaceman, Green, is trapped on a lost colony world where they, they keep the a certain number of the original settlers in cold sleep to wake them up every 50 years so they don't forget about Earth and wow. they can share, share information. And... Um, our hero is very um, upset because he wants his wife wakened up too. And so the whole story goes from there. Um, and I think that one, A, it has a good, good title. It's a pun on Sleeping Beauty, Sleeping Duty. And um, also it has a picture of a space Marine in a powered armor suit carrying a big broadsword on the cover. So I think that's why it's the bestseller. Um, I, uh, I might be most proud of my uh, space space lawyer novel. I write. I've also I've written. I write space opera, and I also write um, bourgeois legal science fiction. And mm -hmm. so the the novel I'm most proud of is called Mercenary Calling, and it is um, it's set next century after a starship has discovered an Earth-like world, but they left an illegal settlement behind. Yeah. And our hero is a lawyer who has to defend the captain from mutiny charges. So um, I enjoyed that one no end. And, you know, there's a lot of space law issues mm -hmm. in it. So I, I thought that I'm proud of all my books. Um, but 
but that one I just had the most fun with, I think. <laughs> so mercenary calling is, is, is that one. Okay. Well, Laura, I, uh, I appreciate you taking the time for the interview. It was great stuff. Thank you, Steve. I had a look, I had a good time. That was Laura Montgomery. This has been the podcast version of the YouTube series From Here to the Stars, which is created by the Interstellar Research Group. The IRG is a nonprofit organization dedicated to thoroughly exploring the science and engineering that can eventually open up the reality of interstellar travel. Find us online at irg.space. I have been your host, Stephen Ewan Cobb. If you enjoyed this video, please hit the like button and you can subscribe to our channel for other such videos. On behalf of all of us here at the Interstellar Research Group, I thank you.